You're listening to Monocle's House View, first broadcast on the 11th of September 2019 on Monocle 24. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and a very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up... We ought to be in Westminster this morning representing our constituents and we're not because Boris Johnson has chosen to shut Parliament down. That has now been ruled to be against the law and Parliament should be immediately reconvened. A Scottish court rules that the suspension of the UK's Parliament is unlawful. My guests Linda Yu and Jonathan Fenby will discuss this in the day's other news, including China tells Britain's Navy it shouldn't do a dirty job for someone else. We'll find out why the South China Sea remains a challenging region when it comes to diplomacy. Plus... Waste not, want not, proclaim the parents of children who refuse to polish off their scraps. So why has the childish simplicity of this common-sense complaint eluded the food industry itself? A pop to the shops, finish style. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle's House View starts now. Welcome to the show. I'm joined today by Linda Yu, broadcaster and author of The Great Economists, and Jonathan Fenby, China chairman at the research service T.S. Lombard and former editor of the South China Morning Post and author of Crucible, The Year That Shaped Our World. Welcome to you both. First of all, China has warned the UK not to get involved in any dispute in the South China Sea. It says the deployment of HMS Queen Elizabeth to the South China Sea could be interpreted as a hostile action. The Minister of Defence plans to deploy the Royal Navy's new aircraft carrier to the Asia-Pacific region on her first operational deployment in two years' time. China said that Britain shouldn't do this dirty job for somebody else. Jonathan, what's happening here? Well, Britain is, uh, I think, must be said largely symbolically, trying to uh, assert or exercise a presence uh, in that area. But uh, in effect, I think one has to recognise that China has won in its expansionary policies in the South China Sea. So uh, this is, you know, the ambassador wagging the finger, which he does quite often, uh, at the British government and uh, longer term laying down... I suppose, uh, the the notion that if you want to keep uh, good economic relations with China, you better not sail uh, your warships uh, through this disputed area. Indeed. Um, Linda, why why do you think that the United Kingdom would want to send HMS Queen Elizabeth to the South China Sea? That's a good question. Uh, (laughs) Wasn't this something the previous Defence Secretary uh, had done with some some disagreement within, I think, um, government at the time? I mean, I think... I think it's always going to be, as Jonathan said, partly finger-wagging, I think, by China, because their target is ultimately the United States. And Britain is viewed as an ally of the United States. And I think that does form part of um, their motivations. Now, I think the UK's motivations are going to be complicated, and they always are complicated um, vis-a-vis China. So on the one hand, yes, um, engagement um economic relations. But on the other hand, there is an issue around um, Chinese actions in the South China Sea, the ruling by the International Court on the issue, where Britain stands in terms of foreign policy isn't always consistent, perhaps, with um, its aims on economic policy. And that's a very long-standing tension. So it's not particular to this government. This has been going on for quite a long time. Indeed. Is this um, a, a, a 
a general rallying together of the West, which is what some people are saying, saying uh, it is, some, Jonathan. To, yes, to some extent. And Australia is certainly getting worried about Chinese expansion, but more uh, to the South uh, in the Pacific there. Uh, and the, the Trump administration, I mean, it has carried out, as the Obama administration did, freedom of navigation exercises in the South China Sea. But these haven't really amounted to much, and they certainly haven't stopped uh, Chinese expansion. A Chinese uh, com- uh, oil company has just recently uh, sailed an enormous crane ship into uh, waters disputed with Vietnam, which Chinese craft, oil exploration craft, have left last month, but they've gone back there. Um, and, uh, you know, Vietnam is now enlisting the aid of Russian oil company to help it. So you've got all these kind of moving parts at the same time. And I think the British want to be part of that. How much weight uh, this country can bring to bear, I think, is very doubtful. Tell us a little bit more, therefore, the, uh, about these accusations by the Chinese ambassador to the UK, Linda, who's saying um, the Britain should not do this dirty job for somebody else. I mean, first of all, dirty job. Is, is is rather um, interesting language, but the implication behind it is surely um, accusing the United Kingdom of doing America's bidding. Well, I think this is where the proxies come in, and this often happens in foreign policy, um, where whether it is the case or not is not really almost the point. <laughs> the point is you've got allies, which are American allies, and then you've got Australia's another yeah. one. So China tends to be surrounded by American allies. And I think, um, you know, sort of singling the ones out who perhaps are in the process of negotiating trade deals, um, <laughs> economic yeah, or deals. Or going to need to do so. Exactly. Is, I think, part of the, um, you know, just part of the sort of diplomatic um, back and forth that tends to happen around these issues. Indeed, mm. some people are saying this morning, well, the United Kingdom really does need China in the next few years, doesn't it? Um, it, it the United, United Kingdom just finds it in a very sticky position, doesn't it? It, it does indeed. I mean, we had David Cameron uh, and George Osborne <coughs> a few years ago, that now seems like a long time ago, um, proclaiming a golden age of relationships with China, which didn't actually produce uh, very much. And certainly, you know, if Brexit goes through, particularly if it's a hard Brexit, uh, Britain is going to need uh, to negotiate uh, trade agreements with China. But the Chinese know that uh, Britain is likely to Need to need them more than they need it, and there's a difficult situation as well. That if the United Kingdom doesn't get involved, there could be equal accusations being made that the the United Kingdom um, is unable or unwilling or is no longer relevant in in in, in the bigger uh, military disputes. I always think it's a very challenging uh, position to be in, not to be an economic superpower, but to be involved in their spheres Mm. of influence, because obviously Britain is a major economy. It's a major country. It is a major defense power. um, But this is not something which it is itself, um, as I say, the policies around it, um, it's not as... It's not as driven towards an outcome, perhaps, as the United States is because Mm. they're rival superpowers. So the question is, what role does do other countries play in what's really a U.S.-China long-standing spheres of influence, rivalries, however you want to describe it? I mean, uh, rule of law adherence. And I think that is actually a question the British and other European governments, um, as well as Australian and New Zealand 
probably do need to be thinking about, which is where do they actually sit? Now, my understanding is, you know, when the shoe drops, um, these alliances have gone on for a long time. So we we know generally where they sit. But it's a trickier time when you have a second economy, which is Mm -hmm. going to become probably larger than the U.S. in the coming, well, say decades. I mean, economic forecasting, hard to say, but certainly a major economy rivaling um, the United States. Let's move on to another area of dispute involving Beijing. We've already hinted on it, the US-China trade war. China is to lift some tariffs on goods in the first such exemptions since the dispute began. Shrimp, fish meal and some cancer drugs will now no longer be subject to tariffs, but key products such as pork and soybeans are still. So, uh, Linda, explain to us what's on the list of the exemptions now and, and why have they been taken off in particular? Well, it's probably important to note what hasn't been taken Mm -hmm. off, which is soybeans and uh, agricultural products. That's actually been a major source of tension. One of the reasons the last round of trade talks, I'm beginning to lose track, there's been a lot of rounds of trade talks broke down, was that President Trump didn't think China was buying as much agricultural products as it had promised. So the real key contentious areas are these massive buys of soybeans and other agricultural products, which has a political dimension because the farm who produce these, who sell these, and China dominates the market in several of these categories, are um, are supporters that Trump wants to woo for his re-election. So what China has done is exempted things that it needs and reducing some of the cost of those. So taking making exemptions just means you don't impose a tax on imports of some key things that clearly China needs for its own development. So it's almost more interesting to look at what China has not um, touched, which is going to be it looks like the next area, the next round of negotiations. I'm sure they'll be talking more about soybeans, and the U.S. administration certainly would want to. They've already spent $12, 13000000000 billion of subsidies to help uh, farmers, um, and that's likely to, to continue. They can't resolve this. So what, Jonathan, is the point of these latest exemptions? They're not what many would consider to be the big, the big they're issues. They're not major. They're not major shrimp, things. Shrimp and cancer drugs will will certainly help some people a great deal, um, but they're not the great game changers. No, and grease and lubricating oil and other things included there, I don't think are, are that. They're not game changers uh, at all. Uh, as Linda says, soy is very, very uh, important there. And China, of course, can get it from somewhere else, notably from Brazil and on energy, where there was a lot of talk about China uh, importing a lot more LNG. It can get that from Australia uh, and the Gulf uh, and other places. Uh, So I think, you know, this is really just uh, an attempt to show we're not completely uncooperative going into the next round of uh, negotiations, which are due later this month or the beginning uh, of next month. I think, on the other hand, uh, my guess would be that the leadership in Beijing has got pretty fed up with these trade talks now, and it certainly isn't going to give way on any major substantive issue which affects the way China runs it, the Chinese leadership runs its own economy. Linda, how would you interpret these exemptions? Would you see them as um, a gesture of, of China saying, oh, come on, let's just get on with it and let's make some progress here? Or arguably the sign that China thinks that actually it could be slightly on the, on the back foot here and that damage is being done to the Chinese economy? 
I think the Chinese are quite practical about these things. I agree with Jonathan. The major things will be what they negotiate over. The minor things, I mean, some of these are not minor, obviously, as you rightly say, for the people who are affected. But these smaller categories, China's policies on economics tends to be very pragmatic. It probably is the case they just need to make these items a bit cheaper. The economy is slowing. Uh, the government is under actually quite a lot of pressure um, with a middle class um, whose consumption is being squeezed. And so this is probably probably practical more than anything else. And it happens to send a sign that the Chinese are, um, you know, flexible. And this is not what uh, the Americans have, have announced they're going to do, which is just to put a tariff on every Chinese import into the United States. And maybe it look, makes them look, um, yeah, more pragmatic um, it, than the Americans who might appear more dogmatic. Indeed, Jonathan, um, some have warned in the last couple of days that it's actually the Chinese economic slowdown, mm. which... Linda has mentioned, which is actually more of a worry than any trade talks or wars. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's, that's much, much more important for Xi, Jin, Xi Jinping and his colleagues uh, in the Politburo than the trade war, whose impact on China, yes, it's there. It's had a negative impact, but it's relatively small uh, depend, uh, compared with the general slowing down of the economy and with the challenges faced by the Communist Party in, on the one hand, maintaining growth, but on the other hand, dealing with uh, some of the weaknesses such as excessive leverage uh, that have grown up during those years uh, of expansion. So I think that's where uh, the focus is. And in a sense, I think uh, broad brush looking at it from outside, of course, <coughs> that Xi Jinping basically wants to freeze the trade war where it is uh, at the moment. And the Chinese are now looking to the next occupant of the White House, who, of course, may be Donald Trump, as he will tell you the whole time. Um, but uh, they're, 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 they're dealing on a much longer term uh, basis, I think, than American policy. So where does this leave the next round of trade talks then, Linda? They're imminent, then they're, they're not far off. Um, this lifting of some barriers, is that a sign of goodwill? And, and indeed, regardless of the amount of trade talks that are taking place, there is always that delicious risk that Donald Trump could just come in and bash the whole thing to bits in a second and in a tweet. Yes, or it could have, um, you know, I'm always optimistic. It could be the opposite. Um, President Trump could decide that his re-election is coming up. He really needs the farm vote, the Midwest vote, the Rust Belt vote. And he decides that um, he's done a great deal with um, with China. I mean, the expectation is always without President Trump in the room, there will be no deal. But we're not even close to that point. At one point earlier this year, we were closer to that point. But the main issues have been are unchanged. Things like... Um, a level playing field. Um, they want China to not just make reforms, but enshrine them in law, which I always think is a little ironic given the um, the fact that Chinese legal system is largely viewed as ineffective. So I'm not quite sure how enshrining these things in law will have a, a huge impact. What you really need is the political buy-in to make it a level playing field. And that's really something that is going to be extremely hard to agree because China's development model is not premised on having a level playing field with the world's economic superpower. And the second part of it is enforcement. So again, this has to be addressed in terms of the Americans and the Chinese have no trust. So they don't believe the Chinese will agree to things and then um, deliver, in which case 
will the Chinese ever agree to America monitoring no, um, their exactly. progress? I mean, these are the same issues that they've been talking about for a year. Yeah, and and you're you're referring back to you know the unequal treaties, nineteenth century uh, foreign colonialism in China, imposing laws. Uh, you can't see the Chinese agreeing to a monitoring and implementing process, basically run by the Americans, which seems to have been at the core of the last near agreement, which I don't think was ever actually near an agreement at all. Jonathan Fenby and Linda Yu will be back in just a moment. But first, here's Monocle's Ben Ryland with some of the other stories we've been following today. Thanks, Emma. Arab nations are condemning Benjamin Netanyahu's plan to annex the Jordan Valley if he wins re-election. About 65,000 Palestinians and more than 10,000 Israeli settlers live in the area of the occupied West Bank, mostly under Israeli military control. Officials in Saudi Arabia, Jordan and Turkey have criticised the announcement, with the Arab League calling the proposal a dangerous development. Israelis head back to the polls in a general election next week. Protesters in Hong Kong have called off demonstrations today in remembrance of the September 11th attacks. Activists have also been denouncing a report in the China Daily, which claims anti-government protesters were planning massive terror attacks in the Chinese-ruled city-state. Embattled leader Carrie Lam has promised to withdraw a controversial extradition bill which sparked the protests, which continue amidst calls for full democracy. And Australia's government has confirmed that three of its citizens have been detained by Iran. It's reported they're a couple, an Australian man and his British-Australian girlfriend, who were arrested in the last few months. The third person being held is said to be a woman with joint British and Australian citizenship, who's reportedly been in custody for nearly a year. That's what's making news. Back to you, Emma. Thank you, Ben. This is Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson and joining me in the studio, Linda Yu and Jonathan Fenby. A Scottish court has ruled that Boris Johnson's suspension of proceedings in the UK Parliament is unlawful. The ruling could eventually lead to MPs being allowed to return to Parliament ahead of the scheduled return date of the 14th of October. Here's what Scottish MPs had to say about the ruling today. The highest court in Scotland has ruled that it is unlawful unanimously and uh, in, in this wonderful equal union which we're told so much about, which is the United Kingdom, then the Scottish court has jurisdiction over the Westminster Parliament. We are Scottish MPs and we are represented there. But just add, add, like add, add, add I mean, we ought to be in Westminster this morning representing yeah. our constituents and we're not because Boris Johnson has chosen to shut Parliament down. That has now been ruled to be against the law and Parliament should be immediately reconvened. Well, Linda, you, this is a surprise, isn't it? But we're used to the surprises. <laughs> the uncertainty around Brexit continues, this indeed. Well, I mean, the highest court in Scotland has overruled actually a previous ruling which held that the proroguing of Parliament was lawful. So now the government is going to appeal. So I think that still leaves the overall question, which is what does it actually mean in terms of the timetable, um, what the outcome would be if the appeal was unsuccessful. So in other words, if the ruling stands uh, and the ruling was based on the fact that the, the, three, the panel three judges found the government 
um, deliberately prorogued parliament to so that MPs could not hold the government to account. Um, so therefore, the remedy is obvious, which is what you said at the beginning, which is that MPs would um, presumably, and I say presumably because this is all a bit um, contingent, uh, return to parliament. Now, proroguing parliament for about three weeks is not unusual. We're really talking about the two additional weeks. And of course, it's coming at a critical time because it's mid-October. And right now, the Brexit day, when we leave the European Union, is the end of October. So even though it may only be two weeks, they're actually a critical two weeks. This is a huge challenge now for the government, isn't it, Jonathan? Yes. Because it puts the, it puts itself against the courts again. Um, and Unless it wins the appeal. Unless it wins yeah. the appeal, uh, which will happen in London, isn't it? The, yeah, the this UK is the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. This, it has this to goes go up now. To the next. And the, Scottish law is separate and, you know does operate in a, a different way. It's a roundabout path that, yes, the, the, yeah. that this legal process is taking. But um, the Shadow Brexit Secretary, Sir Keir Starmer, has said today that it, this is pretty rare for the courts to intervene in such a strong and unequivocal yeah. way. The three judges both delivered the same opinion. Yeah, yeah. And I, using the word stymie, which uh, I haven't heard uh, in legal judgments for a long time, that the government was trying to stymie Parliament. Um, yes, indeed. And this brings the judges. And now we've got, you know, an increasing divide and the potential... Uh, if we have a general election for the government running against, you know, the majority in Parliament, which has voted against it again and again and against the judges. One remembers them being uh, characterised by one newspaper as enemies of the people and so on. So this in- this increases the divide, which Brexit you know, has brought and has uh, exacerbated uh, in Britain. Let's talk a little bit more about any prospective election, Linda. When MPs do go back to Westminster, one thing that will be very obvious, is a publicly fractured Labour Party, the opposition. Uh, The party's deputy leader, Tom Watson, has said that Labour needs to back all out Remain in the the EU and to push for a second referendum on Brexit. Um, That is exactly the opposite of what the leader, Jeremy Corbyn, said yesterday, who said that he wants an election first and when they will not back Remain or leave, but they want a referendum. This really weakens any Remain coalition, doesn't it? Or any, it, it basically strengthens the Brexiteers. Mm, well, Sir Keir Starmer, the Brexit shadow secretary, has come out to say that these are reconcilable. So you get a sense that it's work in progress. But certainly in terms of coalition of Remain, the other announcement today is that Joe Swinson, the leader of the Liberal Democrats, have said that they will back revocation of Article 50. So in other words, the UK has a unilateral right, according to the European Court of Justice, so long as it has a Democrat democratic mandate. Now, you could interpret that as parliament or potentially a referendum. The UK, until it leaves, can literally write to Brussels and say, we've changed our mind. Sorry about all the bother. And we're just going You're to going remain. To go back. <laughs> well, so just but, yeah. but that certainly is not where Labour, uh, wherever Labour stands. That is not where Labour stands. And revoking Article 50 um, is what the Lib Dems are putting out as their stall. So that would also probably prevent a coalition of Remain uh, candidates yep. because I, Labour won't support that. I wonder what we would have all thought had uh, economists actually been running the show. We've seen a little bit more growth than it was expected um, this this past few months. Uh, some saying, oh, the recession isn't going to happen. Um, but, you know, with your economist's head, would you have ever voted for Brexit, Linda? Well, if you call when the referendum was in 2016 in June, I can't believe it's actually three years ago now, <laughs> we were not in this part of the economic cycle. So if you wanted to have some type of um, 
U.S.-China trade war or leaving the European Union, it's probably better to have it when the economy is not in the down part of the business cycle. So growth probably peaked in major economies last year. As we saw, the U.K.'s GDP contracted in the second quarter. Germany's contracted in the second quarter. U.S. and China both slowing down, combating that with stimulus. So in this part of the cycle... um, it's it's really hard to have downside risks. So it's the best. It was the best time for for a problem to be to rear its head. Probably any time other than when the UK economy is poised. In this, we'll find out what happens in this quarter. If we have another quarter of contraction of GDP, then we'll be in a technical recession. Now, of course, the thing about political events is that. They're timed based on politics. <laughs> They're not timed based on the business cycle. But again, similarly with the U.S.-China trade war, if you're going to have a trade war um, and, you know, tackle some really tough issues, try to deal it when the economy is booming. <laughs> you just have a little bit more space uh, for downside risk. What I think a lot of people have been surprised by, Jonathan, is that we have been given the signs, we've seen the signs, the collapse of the pound, the threat of recession. Um, you know, the, the signs do not look good. These are warnings that would usually jumpstart everybody into, into action. But this does not seem to have happened in the United Kingdom. No, and indeed, almost the opposite seems to have happened. But the Leave camp, you know, the worse the news is, the worse the prospects are, the more determined they become. But what this has shown, I think, on the political side is the deep fissures, which we have fissures in in both the major parties. And an election would be so uncertain as as to the outcome of it. I mean, there are, you know, if you take the different polls, um, the Tories could go anywhere from a very low uh, figure, indeed, under 100 MPs, to an overall majority. Labour is more stable because it has more grassroots uh, constituencies in central and northern England. But as we see with Watson and Corbyn today, it's all over the place too. And we have Farage and uh, Nigel Farage and the Brexit party on the side, you know, snapping there, offering Boris Johnson uh, an electoral pact uh, if Tories step down in around 90 uh, seats in favour of the, the Brexit party. Now, Number 10, Downing Street, is rejecting any thought of that because they think that Johnson can win back the the Conservatives who've gone to Brexit and so on. But if that came about, we could have an impossibly confused political situation after a general election, which the system in Britain is simply not able to cope with. One thing that we have seen today, going back to the economic side of things, Linda, is the Hong Kong Stock Exchange says it wants to buy the UK Stock Exchange. Um, What are your thoughts on that? Because it's tricky politically, but as we mentioned earlier on today, the UK needs all the pals it can get. The London Stock Exchange um, would be a valuable asset, of course. I think the challenges is around the Hong Kong Stock Exchange itself. (laughs) There are a few. (laughs) Mm, I've heard, I mean, you know, Jonathan knows this very well. Over the years, (laughs) valuations of things can change pretty quickly and certainly around political events. And one of the big challenges, if you think about mergers and acquisitions over time, right? So sometimes you think, oh, you know, massive company going to buy this one. And then it kind of, then you realize the valuations change and they become a merger of equals where the whole thing falls apart and it was a good deal, it was a bad deal. So I think the issues around this is that, yes, there's some uncertainty in the UK because of Brexit. But if you look at what's happening in Hong Kong, um, 
it's quite clear why they would want to have more of a global reach, because the challenges of the Hong Kong protests, not just this current one, but from the umbrella uh, revolution from a few years ago, is really raising questions around Hong Kong as an international business hub. So one of the news items from today is that um, there are some in Congress who are um, arguing that blocking China alone is not enough because Chinese companies can and Chinese government can go through Hong Kong to access the technologies they can't access directly. So that means that if the U.S. removes Hong Kong from this kind of most favored commercial hub status, that will really affect Hong Kong. John, what do you think of the Hong Kong uh, Stock Exchange wanting to go shopping in London? Well, the Hong Kong, I mean, the, the following from what Linda's saying, obviously uh, mainland money, mainland companies have been a very important element in buttressing Hong Kong economically uh, since the handover, really. Uh, If that stopped because of the protests and because mainlanders were turning off, you know, let's use Hong Kong uh, as the place to to float our companies, to buy property, to get our money, to park our money uh, outside China, then the effect on Hong Kong would be very, very considerable and on the stock exchange. Jonathan Fenby and Linda Yu, thank you very much indeed for joining us in the studio. In a moment, why Finns are rethinking their shopping habits. You're listening to Monocle's House View. Stay tuned. You're with Monocle's House View. I'm Emma Nelson. Finally today, we're off for a spot of grocery shopping with Monocle's bargain-spotting executive editor, Josh Fennett. Waste not, want not, proclaim the parents of children who refuse to polish off their scraps. So why has the childish simplicity of this common-sense complaint eluded the food industry itself? The UN believes that a third of all packaged food is lost between the farm and the consumer and never even eaten. Meanwhile, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change says that food waste accounts for a gobsmacking 8-10% to of all greenhouse gas emissions. The supply chain, in short, is a mess. Recently, however, Finnish supermarket firm S-Market hatched a plan for shifting stock before its cut-off date. The so-called happy hour scheme offers shoppers a 60% discount on soon-to-be-binned stock come 9 o'clock in each of its 900-odd shops nationwide. It's a small bite at a bigger problem, like charging for plastic bags, embracing ugly onions and honouring a keep-cup system. But it's a worthwhile one, given the scale of the issue at hand. The canniness of S-Market's scheme is that it delivers savings to customers at brand goodwill and an easy-to-swallow conclusion that all well-brought-up CEOs will have chewed over in childhood. Namely, waste not, want not. For Monocle, I'm Josh Bennett. Thank you, Josh. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Monocle's House View was produced by Tom Hall. Our studio managers were Steph Chungu and David Stevens. Coming up at 2000 London time, a brand new edition of The Entrepreneurs. Monocle's House View is back at the same time tomorrow. That's 1800 London time. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thanks for listening. Listening.